have been in this series, as you heard in my prayer, if you were listening, a series on prayer, a sermon series on prayer. And then the first installment, we looked at why pray. We tried to answer the question, why pray? The second installment that we're in now, we've titled it, Lord, Teach Us to Pray. We take a momentary pause this morning to remember, to reflect on this special day, Pentecost Sunday. Today, we remember Pentecost. And to do that, I want to preach a sermon from the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts. We'll begin in chapter 1, beginning with verse 12. We'll go all the way into Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Now, yes, I realize that this is 55-ish verses. This morning, I'm going to spare you, and we'll look at certain verses in the story as we remember, reflect, and rejoice in Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Pentecost. That term means 50th. 50 days after Passover was the Pentecost feast, festival. Why is it that we take something from the Old Testament and remember it under this, in the New Testament age, under the New Covenant? Because the New Testament, in the New Testament, we have the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies and those things that were foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Passover, Passover. Jesus said, we, we know, we know that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He was slain. He was beaten and bruised and battered and killed. He was our sacrifice. He was our substitute. Fifty days ago, we remembered that not only did he die, but he rose on the third day. We call that Resurrection Sunday, better known, more popular as Easter Sunday. And now 50 days later, we have Pentecost. And today I want us to look at the significance of what Pentecost is. Before we get there, though, I must first set up our message by, by showing you and reminding you of the current state of society in our church. As I said, as you read and heard about in the news, and as I prayed for earlier, Schools are under attack. It is almost as if some have become desensitized to the fact that young lives are being lost because of evil 
shootings are happening in places that used to be safe. Teachers are under attack. The whole education system is under attack. Our society as a whole is becoming more and more secularized. We now live in this postmodern age, an age where everyone has their own truth, which means that there really is no truth then. Or, or in other words, here's what we say. What's true for you is not necessarily true for me. We, we don't like objectivity anymore. Everything's subjective. It's all, it's all based on your experience, your background, your raising. And as a result, our, our society keeps getting more and more away from God. We now have to fight over the definition of marriage. Who can be married? Is it just man, one man and one woman? Or can two men be married? Can two women be married? We live in a secularized society more and more because now we've got this, we live in this age where everybody is coming out the closet. Except the church. The family structure is under attack. Friends, if nothing else, the things that I've mentioned so far is proof and evidence that we are living in the last days. Now, we have Two responses to this. We can live in a, 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 an area or an arena or an environment of darkness and depression and hopelessness. Or we can live with hope. What do we do here as the church? How do we as the church respond? to everything that's happening in the world. We grieve, we mourn about the state of the culture, the state of our country. But I would argue that we ought to grieve even more about the state of the church. She's not what she once was. It used, there used to be a time when the church would speak up, people would listen. There used to be a time when the church had influence. But dare I say that even the church has become secularized. She's lost, I, I, let me say it like this, I think there's a hole in our holiness now. We are no longer a distinct
We look like the world, talk like the world. And we're not supposed to be of this world. She doesn't pray like she used to. Even now, famous preachers are talking about us not needing the Old Testament anymore. She has, as John MacArthur says, become ashamed of the gospel. I believe what the church needs today is an old-fashioned revival. And these revivals cannot be manufactured by man it has to be a totally and exclusively the work of God. What then is revival? It's important that we define our terms because where I grew up, everybody had revivals. At least once a year. The churches that I was part of, we would have revivals. We would advertise that there's going to be a revival. And we would tell you when it was going to happen. We'd give you the date and we'd tell you what time to show up to see and experience this revival. Unfortunately, the problem with that is that revival, as we see it in Scripture and throughout church history, is oftentimes spontaneous. It's not planned out. Now, there may have been some pre-work done. I'll show you here in a moment. But it couldn't be something that man conjured up. What those revivals were, were services for consecutive nights of the week where we just had church. Now, we hope that people will come to faith. We hope that the church will be re-energized. But can we actually call that revival? So then... What, how am I using this term revival? When I say the church needs revival, what am I talking about? Let me give you a couple of definitions. Revivals are movements of the Spirit of God in which God's power is much more than usually displayed in conversion, transformation of life, and in a deep and reverent sense of the holiness and goodness of God. That, that's not my definition. That comes from D.A. Carson. Here's another definition from J.I. Packer. Revival is the work of God by his spirit, through his word, bringing the spiritually dead to living faith in Christ. 
and renewing inner life of Christians who have grown slack and sleepy. Friends, the result of revivals is that stagnant Christians come alive and sinners repent and turn to God by faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the solution to the problems in our culture are not more policy. The, the solution to the problems in our culture is not a political party. The solutions to the problems in our culture or not the person who occupies the White House. But I propose that the solution to the problem throughout the whole world and not our country is revival. And I want to show you the first revival of the church. Here in Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2, we learn three things about revival. In chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, we are giving the prelude to revival. The prelude to revival. Look at chapter 1, verse 12. Chapter 1, verse 12. Here is how it reads. And just leave your book open because we're going to go back and forth. Then... They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew and James and John, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and the brother. The prelude to revival is prayer. Friends, prayer precedes Holy Ghost revival. It is in prayer that we acknowledge the sovereignty of God because it is only God that can revive soft, cold, dead hearts. It is through prayer that we call down the power of God through the Spirit of God so that the of God will be renewed by the word of God to accomplish the mission of God all to the glory of God. Rewind, press play. It is through prayer that we call down the power of God through the spirit of God so that the people of God will be renewed by the word of God to accomplish the mission of God all to the glory of God. Now, 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 Brandon, you just said revival is all about God. It's a work of God and not of man. Do, should we really pray for revival? If God is sovereign, we ought to. I didn't make this up. There is precedent for praying for revival in Scripture. Can I show it to you? Say yes. Psalm 85, the 85th Psalm, verse 6, the psalmist Praise, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you 
That's prayer for revival. Isaiah chapter 57, beginning with verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. Friends, if we want revival, it is preceded by prayer. We are calling down power from on high to invade this space called earth to change and renew the people of God so that they can be about the mission of God to preach about the gospel of God. And here in Acts chapter 1, Revival happens in two, but in Acts chapter 1, what they do first is they get together and they pray. We're still in our series on prayer. How do then, how do they pray here? The, the, the early church, how do they pray? Let me show you. In, in this prelude to revival, what we see is the church, first of all, praying obediently. Look, 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 Brandon, show it to me. Verse 12 says, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. There's no, Brandon, it doesn't say they obeyed in that text. Context, context, context. Because if you take uh, 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 the text out of context, all you have left is a, thank you. What does, what does this have to do with praying obediently? Remember at the end of Luke, which is the first volume in this Luke Acts, Luke chapter 24, verse 4. Uh, 49, Jesus appears to his Jerusalem, to the disciples who are in Jerusalem at the time, and he says to those disciples, behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, the Holy Spirit, but stay in this city until you are clothed with power from on high. Jesus tells his disciples, stay in Jerusalem. Don't, don't, don't go nowhere. Don't, 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 don't take a vacation. Don't, no, uh, don't, don't do anything. Stay right here in Jerusalem because this is where God wants you to be to receive the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 1 verse 4. Jesus ordered his disciples not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait on the promise of the Father. On two occasions, church, Jesus tells his disciples to remain in Jerusalem to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And look what happens here in verse 12. They return to Jerusalem. They, they, they are in, out of obedience to Christ. They return to Jerusalem and there they pray. Friends, obedience is the environment in which our prayers are most heard by God. Okay, let me give you some more Bible. 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, God, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, now, Here's the struggle that I run into when I preach in gospel-centered churches. I start preaching about obedience, and then they say I ain't gospel no more. 
Great Commission. We're a Great Commission church, right? Say yes. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey. Obedience is the result of disciple making. Obedience is proof of disciple making. The goal is transformation. We ought to teach people to obey everything that Christ has commanded. Now, 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 let me make something very clear here. Now you gospel center people will get back on my team. What I'm not, propo- I'm not proposing here a quid pro quo relationship between God and his people. No, 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 no. This is not answer prayer in exchange for obedience. No, 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 no. Because here's what the rest of 1 John 3 says. Whoever keeps his commands abides in God and God in him. Therefore, our obedience is not the price we pay to get answer prayer, but our obedience is evidence that we abide in God and God is in us. 1 John 15, chapter 7, Jesus says this, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, Ask whatever you will, and it will be done for you. Our obedience, we obey out of love for God. And as we exemplify and prove our love for God, we obey God. And as God sees us doing what pleases him, he says, ask whatever you will. So they pray obediently here. Not only do they pray obediently, but they pray harmoniously as well. I'm in the text. Uh, The text says they were with one accord. They were of one mind. They had a shared heart. They had a shared mission. They were in one place. Now, Let me see if I can make some more people mad at me this morning. They were together in one place at one time praying. Thank you. They were together in one place at one time praying. One people, one place, one time praying. They had, let me see if I can use a term of our day, a prayer meeting. (laughs) One people, one place, one time, one purpose to pray. Brandon, why are you harping on this? I think a sign of a mature church are those who prioritize family prayer. No, no, no. Not just your family. I'm talking about your church family. We see this all throughout the book of Acts. The church was together. One people. One place. At one time for one purpose. To pray. Leonard Ravenhill says that The prayer meeting is now the Cinderella of the church. Ugly and nobody wants her. Forgotten about. The stepchild 
of the spiritual disciplines. Friends, and I'm thankful to Pastor Josh for this. We were meeting this week, and I was, we were talking about some of the uh, issues going on in our church, and he brought it to my attention. He says, it's, a just, it's amazing this kind of spiritual attack our church is under since we started praying. And I've been wrestling with that thing all week long. Because, you know, the first thing is my flesh gets in the place and say, Brandon, this is your fault. You're the one who told everybody we need to pray and get these prayer meetings together. I ain't that powerful. And then I realized, I think Josh is on to something. That's the two times out of the year I think he's right. Church, I'm telling you, I, I'm, I'm signing on with Pastor Josh. Satan doesn't like when we pray <laughs> because he knows the power of prayer. I honestly believe Satan believes in prayer more than the church does sometimes. Why else would he attack you in order to weaken your faith? To get you to a place where you are so angry and so mad at God where you can't even pray. You can bemoan and grieve what's going on in the world and in the church or you can pray about it. These people, when they wanted to see revival, they got together. They were one people in one place at one time, and they prayed. You want to know what scares the mm, something out of Satan? A praying church. You literally want to scare the hell out of them? Pray. I'm moving on. They prayed obediently, they prayed harmoniously, and they also prayed constantly. They were, the text says they were, there it is, devoting themselves to prayer. They prayed continuously. They, they, they were not just the church, the early church was not a church that you could say would, would only pray in times of crises. This is a wonderful lesson for the church today because all too often prayer is placed in the glass with the label that says break in case of emergency. And we have now reduced God to the equivalent of a 911 service. They prayed continually. And we are to be a people that's defined by praying without ceasing. We ought to pray continually, regularly, daily. Not only did they pray obediently, pray harmoniously, pray constantly, but they were also praying with unity amidst diversity. Brandon, are you imposing your will upon this text? No, sir. Verse 14, they were praying together with the women. Luke loves to do this. 
Luke loves to point out women. Not that he, it's not that he was a womanizer. No, 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 no. Don't get me wrong here. What Luke wanted to do was to show the inclusion that happens in the church because of the gospel. Now, 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 hold on, hold on. The gospel is both exclusive and inclusive. Here's what I mean. There's only one way to be right with God, Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be right with God. We believe in the exclusivity of the gospel, the exclusivity of Christ. Jesus Christ himself says, I am the way. Not a way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to be reconciled with God, our creator. We, we cannot rely on any other way. We cannot rely on the way where my mother was saved. God has children, not grandchildren. We cannot rely on the way of I'm a good person. I go feed the homeless every week. I serve at the Lord's Diner every week. Well, that's what saved people do, but it won't save you. That's not the way. Jesus and Jesus alone. Not, not, not being religious is the way. What do you mean by being religious? Being a pious, but you know, I get up every morning and I do my quiet time. I say my prayers, I fast, I do prayer walks, I journal, I meditate. Saved people do those things, but those things won't make you right with God alone. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ and him alone. We are saved by Christ. Christ alone. That's what I mean by the exclusivity of Christ. Now, the gospel, when the church, when you believe the gospel and you become a part of the church, the church there now is no division in the church. We are now all one in Christ and it includes male, female, slave, free, Jew, Gentile. And so what he does here, he says they are united, though they are diverse. There are men and women in this group. You've got to remember, y'all making me work too hard. You must remember that during these times in a Jewish context, women were lower class citizens. They were not much more than animals when it came to status and value. And now in the church, these lines have been removed. These divisions have been removed. There is unity. Though there is division, uh, diversity, there is still unity in the church. 
Let me fast forward a little bit. And what we'll see now is that in the church are both Jews and Gentiles. People that couldn't stand each other. They had a hatred for one another. Now they are together. And that's what the gospel does. The vision for this church to be a multi-ethnic church is just the natural outcome and result of people who have been transformed by the gospel. That's why we must put the gospel at the forefront of everything we do. There was unity amidst diversity. The first thing we learn about revival is prayer is the prelude to revival. We want to see revival happen in our city, in our state, in our country, in our world. We better call on the name of the Lord. Let me show you now, secondly, the person of revival. Acts chapter 2. We'll read the first four verses. Acts chapter 2, first four verses. Here's what it says. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All too often, when we read, study, preach, and hear sermons on Acts chapter 2, we get stuck on the tongues, the wind, the fire. This text has become a catalyst for debate, division, and denominationalism. The wind... The fire and the tongues are not the point of Pentecost. The wind, the fire, and the tongues are not the point of Pentecost. They are only proofs of something new. Pentecost is not about proofs. Pentecost is about a person. Pentecost is about the permanent coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. The Holy Spirit, church, is not an it. The Holy Spirit is a person. He has intellect, emotion, and will. He's the third person of the Godhead. He is co-equal with the Father and the Son. Pentecost is about a person, not the proofs. Too often we get stuck on speaking in tongues. We, we like the spooky. And we want all of this to show that we're filled with the Spirit. That ain't Bible, church. 
Now, some people that's filled with the Spirit might do some of this stuff. But you know what applies to everybody? To show that they are Spirit-filled? Love. Joy. Peace. Patience. Those are Spirit-filled people. I don't care if you speak in tongues or not. <laughs> Let me see if I can uh, make some people uncomfortable. Let me show you how else I know people are spirit-filled. On one hand, they exercise self-control because they don't get drunk with wine. But here's the rest of the evidence of a spirit-filled person in the context of families. Wives submit to their husbands. Y'all think I'm nuts, don't you? Ephesians chapter 5, Paul tells the readers, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. When he tells them this, this, this information, he used a participial phrase. It's, it, his, and what follows after that is he's showing the evidence or the proof of people who are Spirit-filled. Spirit-filled people, the first thing he says, they speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's what spirit-filled people do. This is Ephesians 5. Read it in your quiet time this week. And then the next thing he does is he says, and wives submit to your husbands. That's what spirit-filled wives do. As unto the Lord, by the way. Next part. I'm having a dickens with this microphone today. Next part, spirit-filled uh, husbands. They love their wives as Christ loved the church. And by the way, if you ever do marital counseling with me, uh, men, I'm always going to be harder on you than I am the women. Why? Because you bear the greatest burden. You got to be like Jesus. How did he love the, how did he love the church? He gave himself up for her. Died for her. What else did Jesus do for the church? Here's what Jesus says. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. Spirit-filled people, but especially spirit-filled husbands are servants. I told y'all y'all going to be mad at me on this point. I'm trying to show you what being filled with the Spirit looks like. It's not all this stuff that we think of when we think about Pentecostalism. I don't care if you run around. None of y'all will be Spirit-filled. If, if you run around the building. It's not about dancing and shouting and all that other kind of stuff. Free marital advice real quick. Men, you serve your wives. You don't look to be served. I'm just trying to show you what spirit-filled people really look like. Pentecost is not about the wind, the fire, and the tongues. Those are proofs that something new is happening in the program of God. Pentecost is about the Holy Ghost. Y'all don't say amen because y'all don't like when I call him a ghost. 
person of the Holy Spirit that brings about revival. It is the Holy Spirit that breathes new life in the dead men. It is the Holy Spirit that reignites the fire in lukewarm believers. It is the Holy Spirit that re-energizes the church to be about her father's business. It is the Holy Spirit that emboldens the church to tell the world of their wonderful Savior. The Holy Spirit on Pentecost, something completely different happens. He no longer uh, fills individuals temporarily as he did under the old dispensation. He now comes and he fulfills fills believers. He indwells believers permanently. In the Old Testament, oftentimes some, it would talk about somebody be filled with the Spirit. They would do that in order to accomplish a certain task for God. They were filled temporarily. But now under this new age, the, spirit, the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and he says, I'm going to dwell uh, in you forever. And that's what we see here in Acts chapter 2. We see the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Our time is up. But before I leave you, let me also show you the power for revival. Verses 14 through 41. After the Spirit fell down on the church, they're speaking in these tongues. And by the way, the tongues in Acts chapter 2 are known languages unknown to those speaking. And you can meditate on this this week. In Acts chapter 2, when they speak in tongues, the tongues refer to languages known by other human beings. However, the one speaking the language didn't know the language. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And when they spoke in tongues, they spoke of the mighty works and acts of God. And so the crowd says, what does all of this mean? But some mocked them saying, they are filled with new wine. In other words, these mockers said, they were just drunk with wine. And so Peter, my boy Peter, y'all know I love me some Peter. He stands up and he preaches the first sermon of this new church. By the way, Pentecost, the reason Pentecost is so important is because this is the day the church was born. And so Peter tells the crowd, these people that are speaking, they are not drunk. But this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel, when God said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. And then he gets to the heart of his sermon in verses 22 through 24. Look with me at verses 22 through 24. Here's what Peter says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested 
to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosen the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by you. Notice what Peter does here in this sermon. He goes straight to the heart of the gospel. He goes straight to Jesus. As Charles Haddon Spurgeon would say, he made a beeline to the cross. And Peter says, this man, Jesus, even though he was from Nazareth, he was no ordinary man. How do we know? He says, it was a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. God confirmed for us that Jesus was no ordinary man. He was not just a man, but he was the God man. His exceptionalism was proven through mighty works and wonders and signs. That's the person. Now, Peter says, let me tell you about the work of Christ. He was, verse 23, he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. In Peter's sermon, I'm going to do something that my small group says I do. I, I raise a point and then I move on. I'm going to show you something. Peter here shows us both the sovereignty of God at work alongside human responsibility. What do you see the sovereignty of God? Jesus being delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Friends, Calvary did not catch God by surprise. God planned Calvary for his glory. What's the human responsibility? Peter says, you killed him. You crucified him. You were lawless men. I'm so glad the sermon doesn't end there. Verse 24, God raised him up. Loosen the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Friends, notice who's the cause of the resurrection. God himself. When God raised Jesus from the dead, God was saying, I accept your sacrifice for my son. You are vindicated and you now have the victory. Death could not hold you down. Death thought it had won, but God says, no, 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 no. All power was in my hands, buddy. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news in a bad news world. What's the significance then of the gospel? Verse 36, Peter says, God has made Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. Treason. The gospel is treasonous. In the Roman Empire, everyone was to proclaim that Caesar was Lord. But now, Peter is 
preaching flat-footed. And, and oh, we, I just got to shout in my spirit because this was the same Peter when they said, you were with him. He said, no, I wasn't. I don't know him. The same Peter that denied him is now saying, no, 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 Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. I'm just trying to show you how God can change one person from being a denier to somebody else saying, oh, yes, he's the Lord. He is the Christ. And if God can use Peter, he can use anybody in this room. I got to keep going because we got to go. He, 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 every, you were supposed to pledge allegiance to Caesar. But now Peter makes it clear that for citizens of the kingdom of God, we proclaim Jesus is Lord. We bow down to Jesus who is our master, our ruler, and our king. Look, we get our marching orders from Jesus. He's not only Lord, but he's also the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the prophesied one in the Old Testament that inaugurated this new covenant that we now live under. So then what do we do? Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the gospel demands a response. From every person that hears it, it demands a response. Why? Because all of us need forgiveness from our sins. Why? Because everybody is a low down, dirty sinner. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and by nature we are children of wrath. And what we need more than anything in church is to be rescued from the wrath of God. Not just hell, something much worse, the wrath of God. So Peter says what you need to do is to repent, change directions, turn from, and turn to. We repent when we turn from whatever we're trusting in to make us right with God, and we turn to God by, through Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So church, we, as we remember and reflect and rejoice in Pentecost, we need to remain faithful to the gospel. I know every Sunday we hear the same old message, but there is power in the gospel. This is the power for revival, the gospel. What the world needs now is more gospel. They need more good news. In an age of fake news, we've got real news, true news. Jesus is Lord. This is the power for revival, the gospel. Not fog machines, lights. Great planning, strategy, the gospel. Here's how the Apostle Paul said it. It is the power. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that leads to salvation. You don't believe it? Read the last part of this text. 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. 
That is the power of the gospel. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, help us to prioritize prayer. Forgive us for prayerlessness. God, thank you for sending the Holy Spirit, which is proof that you are a man of your word. You keep your promises. Help us, God, to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit in every, every facet of our life. Help us to be led by the Spirit and not by our flesh. Make us sensitive to the Spirit. God, thank you for the gospel, the good news that you save sinners. Not because we are worthy, but because your Son is worthy. And we are now in Him. We've been made righteous because of him. Lord, now as we depart from this place, keep us from hurt, harm, and danger. In Jesus' name, amen.